A big thank you to all our transcript volunteers. It's really helping us. We've provided a transcript now with new shows um, every single time since last summer. So if you want to help too, just email us at uxpodcast at uxpodcast.com. UX Podcast Episode 231. listening to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. Helping the UX community explore ideas and share knowledge since 2011. We are your hosts, Pat Axbom and James Royal Lawson. With listeners in 192 countries, from Iraq to Austria. So Andy Welfy and Michael Metz have just written Writing is Designing. A book about words and the user experience and how to avoid them being just an afterthought. Andy's been working as a content strategist for around a decade, including at Facebook, and is currently UX content strategy manager at Adobe in San Francisco. And Michael is a writer and UX designer who currently heads the conversation design practice for chatbots at Allstate in Chicago. And now to see whether we can put some words together in a designed fashion to make an interview. Oh, I'm, I'm going to start off, start off by being a bit cheeky. I was, I was thinking about the, um, so like writing is designing or, and designing with words. I imagined instead of like, you know, my bunch of um, whiteboard pens and, and, and sketching tools and everything, that instead we, we could start designing with um, uh, using charades. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> I want a website that's 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 three syllables and <laughs> the first syllable, first syllable is like another word for fish. <laughs> As, you know, do I do I get it now? Is that is that the kind of the essence of the book? <laughs> There's been a lot of good uh, good work done with Mad Libs in the past, which is similar, you know. Yeah, yeah. Give me an adjective here for uh, e-commerce. <laughs> what do you want your e-commerce to look like? <laughs> Yeah. You did have sort of like a Mad Lib in the, in the strategy chapter where you made the pitch of what to do, I think. Yeah, that one um, came from, originally it came from Sarah Wachter-Betcher who uh, wrote our foreword. And oh, she wow. she started teaching that in workshops. And that's just a neat way to help people think about their strategy as a written thing without feeling like um, they really have to be expert writers. So you kind of give them the template to fill in. Um, for this strategy statement, and it helps people have a really good conversation about it. What I'm taking away when I'm looking through the book and, and reading the chapters is I'm realizing, so here's another book about writing, and I'm, I'm getting the sense that we sort of have to motivate why writers are important all the time. Uh, is that true? <laughs> I wish it weren't. I wish it weren't. Um, and I don't know if, if writers are important, but writing is important. Yeah. I mean, I'll... I'll the, the role discussion makes this really complex because um, some people do writing full time. That's their job day after day. Um, but every team is creating written interface that, that goes out into the world. Every software development team, product development team, they're, they're creating something that includes written language. Maybe there are edge cases out there somewhere, but I think like even if you have the um, 
you know, like a VR experience that is um, almost entirely visual. You still have little labels and, and things that help you understand how to use it. So we hope that people start to think of the writing as really important. And naturally, writers are really good at writing. So um, having them around is really helpful for that. But um, I think what, what we want people to focus on is the writing itself. And I think yeah. one reason why we don't, why we often don't, um, you know, focus on the roles is that, um, I mean, just like the book title says, we really want people to kind of apply a design methodology to the words, which often don't happen. It's usually like a flow or specific elements or, you know, just kind of like the, the, the behavior of the site. But, um, you know, if, if you're iterative and you're, you know, testing the words and, you know, you're researching terminology and looking kind of at the overall system rather than just like, you know, popping the words in there at the last, the last minute, which happens a lot. Um, you know, that, that's kind of what we're, what we're really dr trying to drive home with the title and, and throughout the book. Yeah. I mean, something that, I mean, we, when we've talked about writing over the years, it's um, one of those things that, um, you know, people say, oh, content first is something we hear, or it used to be mobile first. Now it's just content first. But, but one yeah. thing that I, I got, came across when looking at the book or looking through the book you've, is that, exactly like you say that design words or the writing is not is not just something you need to do first or last or anything it's actually uh, the entire design process hangs hangs itself around all the words yeah yeah i think we're trying to be a little you know <laughs> countercultural everyone wants to be first <laughs> maybe but mm. that's not so important you know like um actually just being involved all the time is, is what's important and, and being intentional about what you're doing is really important. So um, naturally, like, I, I think that the, the reason like the content first idea came around is that, um, you know, people weren't uh, including writers as much as they maybe could have or including content strategists. I know sometimes that that phrase is used when you think of like a website content strategy where uh, you, the design team creates all these templates without ever thinking about what's going to go in them, right? Um, so I think it's just a matter of being included and partnering. And what we really want to do is give writers the language and techniques they can use to partner with their teams and be a really valuable part of those teams. Because you even do have a, a, a chapter on inviting yourself to meetings and being part of all that because you're not always invited. And people tend to not think of you and they tend to think of you as someone you add on at the end. Uh, whereas many of the arguments in the book, which, which I love, are about the writing is the design. If we start with the writing, we'll know better how to design the, the interface. Definitely. I, I know, you know, at my the place where I work, there's a lot of, um, you know, just high level discussions and strategy that happens before you know, even wireframes start to start to come together and they're like, oh, we don't need we don't need writers in here. This is just this is just a strategy discussion. And I often will say, well, what are discussions made out of? They're made out of words. And, you know, we're going to be talking about nouns and verbs that are going to happen within this this interface um, even before drawing comes together. So that's kind of the best place for for us to be. And sometimes mm. that works, sometimes it doesn't. But there's always also this point you're making that sometimes the, wor the words aren't the problem. When you come in later on and as you're tasked with, please add some words to this interface, and you start questioning even, what does this interface do? 
right. and, and you realize, <laughs> yeah. why, why I can't motivate myself to write something for this because I don't, I don't even understand what it's doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I hope that if pe people come away with one thing, especially those who are new to the field, they come away with a, a higher comfort level of asking questions and mm -hmm. doing discovery work. Because I think writers tend to get pushed out of that piece of UX. They tend to be, like you said, they, they get a, a task. Sometimes it's even a spreadsheet, right? Like the, a spreadsheet with 50 scenarios. We need we need messages for all these scenarios. And um, we what we hope people will see is that it's more valuable. Your impact can be so much greater if you don't just do what you're told in that scenario and write those 50 uh, messages that you've been asked to write. If you actually start a conversation with your team and get more involved in the vision and what people are trying to accomplish with the product, you actually become more effective. Everyone becomes more efficient. Uh, so I think it's kind of a misconception that asking those questions or doing that discovery work takes more time. It takes more time not to do it. And it's it's more costly for your users in the end. Yeah, I mean, it's something I've come across. I mean, I, I, I come across um, quite regularly because I'm because I'm an English native English speaker, but um, but work in Sweden. And um, a lot of the time I'll work with Swedish projects. Um, it's not unusual that I'll get the question. It's kind of like, well, you know, what what should it what should it be on that button in English? Um, and, you know, I can say, well, I can tell you what I think it would be. Um, I can give you my opinion about it, but um, you know, <laughs> I can't. I can't tell you what it should be because we haven't done that kind of research. So, so in some ways, yeah. it gives me the opportunity to come in and say, "Yes, this is me speaking." But you could run the risk of getting a, a like a um, an English educated in the seventies, eighties in Great Britain. Uh, that's going to be your tone of voice for your interface. If you want that, fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. And we give people some. Um I would say lightweight research they can do. One of the best examples comes from gov.uk, actually. Mm -hmm. There's a link to the blog post, and maybe we can even share it over um, for the show notes. But um, they have um, they have this technique called the highlighter method, where they actually just take content and print it out. And I think people can do this with interfaces, too, more than they think, like actual products with a lot of moving parts. And you just take the content and remove it from the interface, give people different color highlighters is the way they do it. So they do a green and red highlighters. And so in their case, I think what they do is um, you, you use green for things that are really helping you and red for things that aren't helping you very much. And then those are just naturally kickoff points for discussion around why those things may not help you. But the, the same sort of lightweight method could be used on a lot of product teams, but people don't tend to think of the, the language people are interacting with as a user interface element. They're usually thinking uh, more more visually than that. And it makes a big difference too. The the from target audience to target audience. Um, you, know, you can have one 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 group of people who um, maybe they um, they use they're familiar with terminology because of their background. Whereas another group for the same product or same website would would not understand that language at all. Oh, for sure. I think that yeah, it's a uh, it, it it really helps you see kind of like a bigger picture and and patterns within it. Um, and of course, you know, it, it just gets you peeking and in, peeking into corners that you don't, you know, you wouldn't otherwise, you know, peek into, right? Like, like, oh, I didn't even, I didn't even think about this message, or I didn't even realize that this was jargon or terminology that I wasn't seeing before. It's, it, we've done that a couple times um, where I am, and yeah, it's, uh, it always reveals something. 
Yeah. I mean, you mention um, a number of times throughout the book, you mention the importance of context. Um, I think you mentioned it with, with error messages, with inclusiveness. I think even in the yeah. strategy aspect, you're talking about it. And that's... Um, um, we, we, I think we're familiar with context when we think of situations people will be using it. But I, 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 my, my spontaneous feeling is that maybe we aren't as good at thinking about language context. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I think, I think terminology has a lot to do with that. Like I, I, work on, I work on a lot of complicated design software in, at Adobe. And, um, you know, we, we usually say that, you know, jargon... Or, you know, technical jargon isn't always a, a bad thing. We just need to really, you know, reduce the number of it and make sure that we're giving proper context. In this case, like introducing it slowly and making sure that, you know, we're, we're disclosing it when a user needs it. Um, so for sure, yeah, that's, a, that's something I'm thinking a lot about. Just where in the user journey are we putting up like onboarding messaging or really educating users how to use this thing. Yeah, that's yeah, that's it, a similar idea to, I don't know if you both have read uh, Badass by Kathy Sierra, um, but it's the idea of making users awesome that she talks about. You know, like sometimes that that is the ideal approach where you help people understand those things. Um, you help them level up their own skills and, and help them get more involved. Of course, you actually include them in, in, in making the content. And that's why when I look when I'm looking at this book and looking through it, I, I, what I really like is that it's applying design thinking to just copywriting, and it's going through the strategy and user interviews and testing and experimenting. Uh, and there were some some things that were really aha moments for me, like um, experimenting with tone, because that's something I haven't come across. Because usually it's the case that you're told that this is what the website should convey, and then there's a black and white uh, right or wrong answer uh, to how you should do that. But experimenting with tone, <laughs> the way I interpret it is then that you would actually try and write things in different tones and see what works and, and test that. Uh, could you walk us through how that would work? Yeah. Um, I think that especially if you, if you do a lot of you know, work on developing a series of tones um, that you want to test, you know, it's something that like, I mean, it does a lot of work because you can't just apply it toward one kind of message in isolation, even though I guess in the book I did use one message in isolation. <laughs> it's, I, I didn't have time to do a whole, you know. Um, anyhow, you can really apply, you can really see, I think straight off you can see tones that are kind of extreme and don't work, right? Like you don't want to apply a really celebratory tone to, um, you know, a password reset button or a password reset message or something like that. But um, you can play around and test out um, a system that would, you know, maybe take on a more proactive or a more sympathetic or something that's just very, very neutral and straightforward and kind of see what works the best. Um, I think that a lot of the time, you know, something that is neutral and something that's not taking, taking up a lot of like cognitive space in a user's mind is going to come out best, but there are definitely like kind of like high risk, high touch areas where you, you know, might, it might surprise you how much kind of care and empathy you, you need to give um, in order to, mm -hmm just really get it through a user's mind or really get them to kind of complete a workflow. So um, that is definitely like one of the most, I don't know what to say, like editorial parts of a, of a UX writer's uh, job is just really making sure you're hitting the tone that's appropriate for the user. And, and like you said, there's no, there's no right or wrong answer for that. Um, it could be, it could be a series of things. It could be kind of a blending of two tones. It could be something, you know, 
something in the middle. So how does yeah, that testing then... really helps that. Sorry, go. Ahead. Sorry, um, I mean, how does that then um, feed into um, brand voice and, and product voice? As you mentioned, both those different aspects um, as well in the book. Yeah, um, definitely a tone should should not really so. I guess one thing I should kind of set some context up here is, you know, voice and tone, while they're very interrelated, are definitely different things. And I think a lot of mm. people conflate those, right? Like a, a tone is, people talk about the tone of voice. Um, yes. And we're kind of treating them differently here. Like I, I am Andy. I always have the same personality and the same set of values and the same interests and the same, you know, the same broad context. So that is my that is my product voice, my product voice of Andy Welfley. Um, whereas my tone, like, you know, here on the podcast, I'm talking in a certain way. I'm talking about different things. I'm trying to set context. I'm talking very long form. Whereas if it's, you know, just me and my sister or me and my college roommate or me and my cat, you know, I might take on a different tone. Um, I might, you know, <laughs> speak in a different way. I might talk about different things. <laughs> Can, uh, just for demonstration purposes, could you uh, explain tone to your cat? Real quick? <laughs> I'll see what I can do. <laughs> Sebastian, yeah, to get cat that, Andy try, tone. Yeah, <laughs> yes, try to get that <laughs> into an interface to get the user's attention. It's <laughs> the cat tone. <laughs> um, so anyhow, uh, yeah. So you always kind of want to keep a very consistent voice, uh, whether that's your brand voice or your product voice, but you do want to kind of vary your tone based on context. And that's usually kind of how I how I describe it, right? Like there's a continuum or a spectrum of, of tone in which, you know, in a, in a voice continuum where it lives, right? Right, okay. I remember so a few years back that MailChimp was always the go-to example of how to write tonal voice on your website. And oh, it was yeah. like, this is, how, this is how you should do it. And, uh, and it all sounded so strange to me because that's how they did it. It's not how to do it. It's, that's one choice. And it, they also, I know they received some criticism. And in the end, they actually had a, a button in the uh, settings where you could switch it off. Switch yeah. off that fun, <laughs> fun tone. Yeah. <laughs> just just if, you don't, if you don't like it, just put a, put a toggle on it. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I, I definitely like wanted, we wanted to provide a framework that was, you know, kind of scalable, like, you know, a, a really, really in-depth system of tone isn't maybe best for, you know, a small directive piece of software. Um, but like, if it's something where, you know, you're just, you're just using this interface to, you know, reorder batteries or something, um, it's probably not, you're not thinking about like celebratory or sympathetic tones. <laughs> um, but if you are a, um, well, I should let Michael speak to this maybe, but if you're like an insurance product or something, you want to make sure you're being very, um, very careful about what the user is thinking and what context they're in and not saying like, congratulations, you just bought, you just, you just cashed out your life insurance. And, you know, the user might be going through something really traumatic or awful at that point. So, um, yeah. 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 I mean, it it isn't even that obvious a lot of times either. One example that I recently ran across was um, I work on conversation design teams that are building um, automated chat systems um, for customer support. And uh, one of the people I was working with, it was a really well-intentioned comment, but their their idea was um, maybe we should end each chat with um, like, have a great day as a sign off. <clears throat> but what, what, the reason I pushed back on that was because we have no idea what people are going through when they're chatting with us. So they could be 
they could have just lost their house. They could have just been in a car accident. Someone in their family could have just passed away. All of those things could be happening. And when we sign off, even though it's cheerful for us, the the technology isn't smart enough to know what's going on um, in their life. So we have to just be really, really careful and get those stress cases um, that, you know, um, that people may be going through out in front of everyone. That's a, such a good point because I think, I mean, some people even have in their email signatures, they have, have a great day. And it, it's yeah. the same point. <laughs> That's not, not a message you want to give to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Though with a, with a person though, like if I, I think there's often a little bit more tolerance for, for human saying that, right? Like it's something where, you know, I'm, after we sign off, I'll probably say, you know, have a good one guys. And, you know, I don't know what's mm -hmm. going on in your day. I don't know, but it, it, I think people just have a, are given a little bit more leeway to, you know, mm -hmm. be conversational and friendly and, and like mm -hmm. adapt to context where, you know, cold, hard interfaces, um, even a chat bot, um, you can't put that sort of same expectation on them. So people definitely like are a lot less forgiving and, and rightfully so. Yeah. So so is this becoming more and more important as we are getting our smart speakers into our homes? Is the interface dying in favor of the words? <laughs> I don't know if the interfaces are dying. Um, I think like those, there's a lot of hype around conversational interfaces right now. I'm on a team that, that focuses on that work uh, in my day job. And they're certainly really important. And I think talking about language and talking about how we can apply design methods and research to language is really important for, for all that work that's happening. Um, I'm not sure how successful it'll be. Like I'm not, I don't paint myself as a futurist or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> but I do think that those things, when you're writing a dialogue for one of those things, it is design. And a lot of people don't think of it that way. You know, like there was a new team we were working with at work um, and they heard that I was from UX and they were like, Oh, okay, well, you know, just let us know if we should change anything about how the chat window looks. And <laughs> and I was thinking, that's that's not why I'm here. <laughs> you know, like the chat window isn't what gives customers uh, a solution to the problem they're going through, right? Um, the dialogue, what, the, what this bot you're making actually says, that's what does it. So it, I think we, we have a lot of work to do to help people think of words as a design element that, um, is just as critical as anything else um, that, that people have typically thought of as design. But seriously, um, Michael, what, what color should we make that chat window? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Steve, Steve Jobs would have, I mean, he, he would say something about the font and the size of the buttons oh, on the yeah. calculator. So, I mean, <laughs> oh. definitely important. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I mean, we, we we've mentioned uh, oh, the 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 voice and and tone, um, which are, are kind of concepts that um, are not next level, but I mean, in some ways they're a little bit more um, next step when it comes to writing or creating words for these things. But I think I want to I talk a little bit about error messages. Um, you dedicated an entire chapter to to error messages, and I think that's something that all of us whether we're um you know designers that um you know, whether ux writers or, or ux designers error messages are something all of us have um had to deal with so 
can you give us some 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 advice about error messages? I think a lot of where we go wrong with error messages is when we think about, as, as you said, dealing with them, right? Like for a lot of teams, they come last and usually they're turned up by someone who's doing that development work who's like wait hold on (laughs) there are like six scenarios Mm. we have to account for can you please just write something general (laughs) that we can tell people (laughs) in all six of these scenarios an error has occurred please try again (laughs) exactly and i think that's that's kind of where we go wrong um there the story that we we tell in that book uh, there's a an interview with uh lauren lucchese who's a fantastic designer. She worked at Capital One for some time on um, Eno and um, has done a lot of work in this space. And she talks about how she was given this assignment to write a bunch of error messages and no one knew too much about why they were being triggered or what was going on. And what she focused on was how she could help people more effectively with those messages. So when you flip it on its head, that would be, that would kind of be my main piece of advice. Don't think about an error. Don't think about the user being wrong. Think about how you can help them move forward in every situation. So if there's, if if there's one big concept for people to go away with, that would be the one. Um, So, you know, one of the, we, we give a few ideas for how to approach error messages. And the first one is avoid, like the best error message is one that you don't have to have at all because your design was good enough that um, it didn't lead people down that path, right? Like a lot of these errors come from business processes or constraints that people have chosen to put into place that sometimes don't even need to be there. So that, you know, that that's kind of my big piece of advice for errors. Like flip your, flip your perspective on it and start to view them as more positive opportunities and less about like negative moments where people did something wrong. The best error message is no error message. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, perfect. I like that try, advice. Try, t- try telling that to your engineering team, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, when they come with that list of six, that like you you really do need to have some text yeah. for this. Yeah. <laughs> As I'm hearing you talk about this, what I'm thinking is that there are so many heroes out there who are unseen but are writing all these texts that nobody's reading on the product team and for these error messages that nobody is seeing but it's solving all of these problems and keeping them away from support and moving them forward. And it's just these unspoken heroes of copywriting uh, that are sitting and listening, (laughs) I hope, (laughs) who are real heroes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And honestly, many of them are engineers, you know, like they're they're writing them because they have to, because if Mm. you don't write something, this code Mm. has to be shipped in three hours. Mm. Right. (laughs) So, so there, there are definitely moments where like you, you, as a writer or someone who's focused on writing on a team, you may have some of those urgent situations where you have to just get something done. But if you start to build relationships with those people, they can start to identify things earlier and earlier, and you can start to solve bigger problems over time. And then on the other hand, <laughs> there are, I, w- I will not say which, which product there is, but there was a, uh, there's a pretty, there's a error message that appears in a pretty old, Adobe product that has been there for a while and uh, for a decade at least. And when you come in with like, you know, full of vigor and ready to change things and file a JIRA ticket to try to get them to update that error message uh, and you get the response, oh, people just, people just Google that. They can find out what that means if they just Google it <laughs> instead oh. of you know, putting the actual problem in the error message. That's a, that's a fun one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to call anybody specific out on that. So, <laughs> here in this podcast, to solve our problems, though, we'll read read your book. 
I think there are many, many oh, yeah. concre uh, concrete tips uh, and pieces of advice that uh, I'm certainly going to make use of when, when talking to to my team as well. Yeah, I really wanted to make sure we, um, you know, my, Michael does as well. We want to make sure we're, we're, we're giving like some high level context and sort of the the rhetoric around um, solving these problems and, and building teams and collaborating, but also, you know, gives give a give some very like real takeaways, like some frameworks and some some approaches. So I mm. I like to think we we really like hit a balance of both. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. All right. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for having us on. It's been a lot of fun. I I really do like how. Um, Michael and Andy have, have managed to keep the the book um, at a level that makes it usable for lots of different groups of of people. Um, it mm. feels like you could actually hand it to your, your your team of devs and they could read it and get practical um, you know tips from it. At the same time, you could be a UX writer and read it or have it by the by the side of you in your desk and it would be really useful. That's a really good point, James. Because I mean, uh, and of course, that speaks to how good they are at what they're writing about. Uh, uh, which, of course, you, you sort of have to be uh, to be taken seriously. But I, I'm, I, I agree; they have done a really good job. I'm impressed by how easily accessible it is, and how easily it is, it is to flip through and find stuff that oh, here's a good example, and here's a good example, and just be inspired by it. I mean, the the, the cynic in me maybe would go, "Well, look, they're writing a book about writing is designing." If mm. if they didn't manage to to make it kind of um, feel like it's, it's it's accessible by lots of different groups of people, they probably failed with what they're you know, fa failed in um, applicating so applying sorry what they're actually writing about. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's what I mean. So, so yeah. there's actually more more pressure on them <laughs> to do it correctly that way. You're right. Uh, than other people. Yeah. Yeah. They've 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 raised their own bar. Um, but mm. they, they, yeah, they've done it really well. Um, it's it's good. Um, I also really appreciate the humility of, of it that it's actually not. I mean, I can sometimes get religious and and, and say things and blurt out things like d design first, like we were talking about there. It's really important that we get design at first. But what they're saying, it's no, it's really important that we cooperate and mm. that everybody's involved uh, so that we can work together. Yeah, that being intentional was is more important than being yeah. first. Um, yeah. And, and that's I, I do love that practical hands-on approach to this. Um, and going, you know, tied into what I said about you could give this book to to you know developers on your your team or that you work with, um, it made me think about how how this ties in with error message, but but also how it ties in with accessibility. Um, I mean, right. the, what, one of the things I come across is that a lot, quite a quite a fair few designers in my experience they they don't see some of the accessibility aspects as part of their role um mm. whereas a lot of a lot of the the um accessibility side of things especially when it comes to screen readers and and um um and aria um implementation it's 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 code stuff that needs to be done but it involves deciding what words are going to be used to describe things and what or what sequence of words exactly um, yes and if you're a if you're a developer that's um, mm. well if you're not aware of this you're not going to do it. But there mm. there are often developers who are aware of it and do try and do it, and end up putting the words in themselves or deciding which bits of the page or bits of the screen are going to be used as the labels. So they mm. are doing the, the 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 design of the words for accessibility. Without exactly maybe intentionally doing that. Yeah. 
you know, maybe a designer hasn't helped them or a UX writer hasn't helped them say, oh, no, this would be much better if you did this order or if you put that one there or this points to that label. It's, it's um, I think there's, there's definitely a way that this maybe could help um, raise the quality of some of the unintentional design work um, developers maybe do. Yeah, and that makes me think, I mean, there's lo depending on you write, what you write in a button, what you write in an area label or name field, what you write uh, on a link, that triggers, that can be triggered by voice. Because mm. some people use assistive technology that, that is triggered by voice. So if you haven't decided what word should trigger that, that will be decided unintentionally, mm. uh, which could potentially destroy things for the future as well, because that will probably carry on into other assistive technology. Yeah, I, I think the, um, I'd like to think that with the, with the amount of um, chatbots and, and voice interfaces that have appeared in recent years, um, that, that, that this really has helped um, raise awareness of designing words, because mm. we, we're, we're forced into situations where there isn't much graphical user interface to play with. There aren't there aren't so many pretty little colored things to to push pixels around. The, you have to focus on the words. Um, so yeah. so if we take Michael himself, I mean he, he he was working more as a what we would probably call a traditional UX designer um, initially. Okay, it's a writer as well, but he did a lot more UX work that we'd recognize as UX work. And now he heads the the conversational design uh, part of his um, company, um, doing chatbots. Um, exactly properly focusing on, on the words themselves. Mm. You know what this makes me think of? It's when I started playing video games in the 80s, some of the first games I was playing were only text-based. Mm. They were words on a screen when I got to choose what direction you want to move in, and then the text told me, you are in a room, you have these paths to go, this is what you see. Yeah. Uh, and that made me think now that if if people who use those games are designing now, they probably are better off having that experience, realizing that there's so much that can be conveyed with just words. Yeah. Do you know what? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell a little story. I mean, I used to play those games as well. And I remember yeah. one, of the, one of the first games I used to play, text-based ones, uh, I, used to, I think it was called Sphinx. Uh, it was a text-based mm. adventure for the, for the BBC microcomputer back in the early 80s, probably. And, oh, I, wow. and, and I used to sit and I used to play it with my grandma. Because, oh, yes. because she, um, okay, back then she probably wasn't mm, a huge amount older than I am now. But, um, <laughs> but, but no, we could sit there together. And, and the fact that it was text-based mean that you, you know, the pace, you dictated the, your own pace of the game. There was nothing, exactly. there was nothing stressing you. You, know, you could write, mm. um, move north, um, you know, pick up sword, all these kind of things mm. that you would um, do, attack dwarf or whatever it was that you had in the game. Um, Mm. They, um, and, and they could work on this together and work out, and you discover the commands. I hadn't really thought about the um, that connection back to designing words back then. Mm. And that's such a good that's a, such a good story about how it actually just bringing it back to the words means that it's more accessible to a greater number of people. Yeah, nice point. Maybe I mean I'm babbling now about one of my stories from my childhood, um, but um, it's always fun to hear everyone else's stories as well. So if you want to give us um, some feedback on this interview or even share some of your own stories, then please email um, 
uxpodcast.uxpodcast.com. And thank you for spending your time with us. And, and links and notes from the episode, of course, always found online on uxpodcast.com if you can't find them in your pod-playing tool of choice. And remember, you can um, contribute to funding the show by visiting uxpodcast.com slash support. Or volunteering to help with the transcripts is also good. And you found, because you're, you're the one who always finds all these recommended listening episodes, episode 160, uh, a link show, I need more sleep. I can't even remember that. <laughs> you're probably asleep. We, yeah. <laughs> we talk about why uh, your design team should include a writer, apparently. Yeah, we do, amongst other things. <laughs> it's quite a nice one. We've, we've actually talked about words a few mm. times over the years. There's, um, you yeah. might even remember that one, um, that webpage that was just words. What was that called? Yeah, there's an episode we have that it's called Words, 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 I think. Uh, episode 50. Yeah. There you go. You got a bonus one. <laughs> <laughs> Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. How many mystery writers does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know, James. How many mystery writers does it take to change a light bulb? Two. One to screw the bulb in almost all the way in, and one to give it a surprising twist at the end.